The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Gracious Father, we covet your power, not that we may do great things and show ourselves to be awesome, but that we may be used by you to magnify your name in the lives and the places that you have situated us and then through us and into the lives of others. We want your name to be magnified, for Christ to be honored, for people to be delivered from bondage. And we cannot do that. We need your power for that. And so we ask you humbly and broken, that's what the song's about, on our knees, humbly and broken. Would you please come? Would you please stoop to meet us again? Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. We, sure, we, we can talk about the Bible. We can understand some things from it. We can maybe sock away a little more of fact in our minds, but we cannot be changed and we cannot change others apart from you. So we ask you, would you please at this point, at this, at this moment, in this place, would you commission your spirit to run among us and move? We are a people with great need. Half of it we don't know. So please, would you do a work here to make your word clear and to change us and produce in us some more of that brokenness and some greater determination to turn to you. Would you use this morning's passage, Lord, to, to turn us and to teach us something about how to turn? Help us, Lord, as we sift through a lot of material this morning. Help us to see the main points and not get lost in all the details and use it to grow us as your people holy and fastened to you, delighting in you for your honor and for our good. It's in the name of Christ that I pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the last three chapters of the book of Judges. We have spent several weeks now in this book of Judges in preparation for a lengthier upcoming study in First and Second Samuel because Judges prepares us for one of the main themes there in Samuel, the issue of a king over the people of God. Over the last two weeks, as we've looked at Judges 17 and 18, we have seen this, this need, this issue of a king rise up there. We, we've seen that those chapters, as well as the whole book really, are just full of alarming things. As you read them and see what has happened, often, as a sensitive reader, you're struck with this, what on earth is going on here? And then God's answer 
throughout these last chapters in four different points, he, he puts this phrase in in different variations. Well, you know, in those days there was no king. In the, you know, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's why. They need a king over them. And we pick up that theme again in the last three chapters of the book of Judges, recording events from earlier in the period of Judges, but the writer has put them here at the end to leave us with a punch. And yes, we are going to look at three chapters. And because I don't want to be here until, you know, one o'clock, I'm not going to read every single verse of those three chapters. But what I am going to do, because we kind of need to get the flow of the story, I am going to read pieces and then summarize and pick up again a little later and read some more pieces and summarize and, and then come to chapter 21 and I'll read the whole of the last chapter because it's significant. So I'm going to ask you to follow along with me pretty closely as I, as I work through these chapters in a slightly different way. But altogether, we're working towards this point. Here's my main point for this morning that I'm after. Only submission to God's King can preserve us as His holy people. Only submission to God's King can preserve us as His holy people. Apart from that King, we're going to destroy ourselves. That's what I'm working towards this morning. Let me read. I'm going to first read Judges 19, verses 1 through 4. In those days... When there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days, and so they ate and drank and spent the night there. The story begins, 19 verse 1, begins with the familiar phrase, it's reminding us, set the context, now there's no king. So keep that in mind as you read the rest of this. And we have this, this marriage where there's some marital difficulty, and the woman goes back to Bethlehem, important city, important town, and eventually the husband follows her back, and what does he find there? He finds great hospitality in the town of Bethlehem, and is welcomed and wined and dined for several days, and finally, though, he says, you know, we, we just have to go home. We have to leave. So he gets up, picking up in verse 10, but the man would not spend the night he rose up and departed and arrived opposite, opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gebeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gebeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gebeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. 
They come to Jerusalem, which at the time is still owned by foreigners, the Jebusites. And though it's getting close to dark, the Levite does not want to spend the night in a city owned by foreigners. He wants to be among the covenant people of God. Who knows what you're going to get with foreigners, but with the covenant people of God, surely you'll get welcomed, protected, cared for. So they press on. And they come to the town of Gebeah in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. And so as to fix it in our minds, the text says Gebeah in verse 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Where are we? We're at Gebeah, town that belongs to Benjamin, where these weary travelers are not shown hospitality, but are left stranded there until a man, an old man from Ephraim, who happens to be in town, but he's, he's visiting, he welcomes them in, Shows them hospitality. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, which city is it? Worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. In a story that should remind us of Sodom, the men of the town come looking for the male visitor and are instead offered up some women. Nice. And these worthless fellows commit this atrocity. Now, obviously, the, the two men from Ephraim are not uh, very reputable here. They also are, are guilty. But the, there's no doubt who the real criminals are and who the real victim is. The, the woman from Bethlehem, the Bethlehemite, is abused, assaulted, and murdered. And then from verse 27 all the way down through chapter 20, verse 7, we have a cold husband who comes out in the morning, finds her dead, picks her up, carries her home, dismembers her and sends her throughout all of the tribes of Israel who are shocked to find out what has happened and they all assemble together, 400,000 of them at Mizpah to find out the details and to decide upon a course of action. Chapter 20, verse 8. Gathered there, all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house But now this is what we will do to Gebeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gebeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gebeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. 
But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. So Israel decides that they're going to repay Gibeah. They're going to kill these worthless fellows and therefore purge the evil from their midst. That's language from the law. In the book of Deuteronomy, purge the evil from their midst. You may remember that language from our study there. So somebody at least is thinking about the law here. Somebody's thinking about God's requirement. If they don't purge the evil from the midst but just let it go, the book of the law says that the curse of God will remain on the land. So they're going to do something about this, but then the whole tribe of Benjamin decides that blood is thicker than covenant and says, no, we're going to side with them. And war breaks out. What we have through the end of chapter 20 down to the beginning of 21 is the details of all the fighting, and there are several points where God and his people interact. We'll talk about that later. But the end result is that Benjamin is nearly wiped out. After several setbacks, Israel is victorious, and all but 600 fugitive warriors are eliminated, every man, woman, and child, except for the 600 killed. All the cities burned. And then Israel has kind of a change of heart and veers back in a different direction as they feel kind of bad about what's happened. Chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. In other words, we're going to wipe them out, and we're not giving any of our, of our kin to them to allow them to repopulate. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly, and they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? So they start looking around. Who didn't come for the fighting? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord, to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. In other words, if you don't come and join us in the fight, we're going to kill you. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. When the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with the male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimon, which incidentally there are 600 there. So they just got 400 wives, but they need 600. And they proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time 
And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and then go back to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, which they surely will, We will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty, but because we stole them from you, everything's going to be okay. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them, And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Problem solved. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which is a poignant end of the book. It's the last verse of the book. And obviously, there's a lot there. Obviously, I skipped over a lot, and I'm going to skip over even portions of what I did read. There's plenty there. But we now we have a feel for all this, and we see the, the depraved nature and the chaos of some of these events in this country. And now I want to turn and flesh out two points about submission to a king. Here's what I'm going to focus on this morning. First point. Out of Bethlehem in Judah will come the king who will purge evil from his people and fasten them to God. Out of Bethlehem in Judah will come the king. There's always been a king coming. There's a need for one. He's going to come from Bethlehem in Judah. And that's the king that will purge evil from his people and fasten them to God. Without that king, the people will destroy themselves. But that king is coming. He's coming from Bethlehem. That's one of the points throughout these three chapters and really throughout the book as a whole. The point of they need a king, and then there's a bit here that is helping us to identify this king. The book of Judges was logically written after the period of the Judges was over. In other words, during the period of First and Second Samuel. That we're coming to. Remember one of the main issues in First and Second Samuel? Who is to be the king? Who is the king that God has chosen? Saul of Gebeah in Benjamin? Gebeah is Saul's hometown, you know. Or David of Bethlehem in Judah? Which one? 
Is, is God's chosen king, the one that, that we are supposed to follow, the one who comes from the line of the sufferer in Bethlehem, or the line of worthless fellows that sided with Sodom? Which one is it? Obviously, making the point, we must look for a king in the line of David. Knitting that through the story. But, but why do we need a king? What do we need a king for? Well, what's the main problem here? And that's hard to focus on because there are so many problems. We're captivated, obviously, we're captivated by the murder because of the details that are told there, because it resonates with us very personally. It could be right out of the newspaper, frankly. You know, there's, there's a lot of connection to things that happen in our world. And layered on top of that, obviously, there's, there's the, the treason of Benjamin, the whole tribe that sides against the covenant. Knowing what the covenant says, they still pick their family against God. And then on top of that, there's brother-on-brother warfare. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a huge mess. And in chapter 21, we see it veer back in the other direction in which now the people who seem to be following God now decide that, boy, they're grieved by how this is all snowballed and how it's apparently wiped out one of the tribes. And so, I know, let's kill more Israelites. That didn't work out totally. I know, let's kidnap some Israelites. What on earth? And then you come to the last sentence. Oh, that's the problem. That's the problem. Everybody is doing what is right in his own eyes. That's the problem. The end. It's where the book ends. The covenant people of God, unable to purge evil from their midst, but instead just multiplying it as they problem solve from their own viewpoint according to their own standards. Sometimes there's some good things, sometimes there's some bad things, but the whole thing is just circling down and down and down. These are the people, these are the covenant people of God who have God dwelling in their midst. The ark is right there. Chapter 20 talks about how they, they brought the ark. God is in their midst. They have the word of God. They know the covenant. They have a history of God's working with them, and yet without his reign over them, Everything goes down the toilet in bizarre and tragic ways. They need a king over them. And so do we. It is, it is really easy for us to sit and, and look at them and read this and say, my goodness, crazy. And there is a sense in which this depravity has gone off the charts. You know, rarely do we pick up sword against one another. But we are just as prone to war against one another and kill with our mouths or words. Rarely do we commit the kind of crime that Gebeah did, but we are very prone to use people, are we not? Get what we want from them, please ourselves with them. We are highly prone to pragmatism which is what chapter 21 is all about. I know. I know it will do. I know it will do. Because we have the same basic problem. We are deeply, we are deeply committed. And I say this to Christians too. We are deeply committed 
to the sense of autonomy, self-rule. Now, there are two ways that we should think about this. There is clearly, and this is in the church, there is the commitment to self-rule that is what I'll call high-handed. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention things with slight variation details to protect people, but things that I hear in the church from people just like you. A high-handedness that says, yes, I know that there is no biblical grounds for divorce, but I'm not happy, so I will do it anyway. What is that? but high-handed acting according to what is right in my own eyes. Yes, I know it is wrong to gossip, but in this case, the truth needs to be told. What is that other than high-handed behavior according to what is right in one's own eyes? There is... A very clear, professing Christians in alarming ways rationalize away all kinds of disobedience. So I want to say that and be, and be clear about that. However, I think it is more common that we see this in what I'll call low-handed, just to set the contrast. Not a real phrase, but subtle. More commonly, and I want to speak here, the high-handed needs to be confronted and called out. And, and maybe the, the other, what I want to speak, how I want to speak, what I want to do with it is, is alert you and help you rather than confront you. Because this is more commonly where we live. It could be I think it is that most living according to what is right in our own eyes that happens in our church is not blatant or brash, but looks a whole lot more like an ordinary plodding through life, doing the same old, same old. I get up in the morning and I think, what should I do today? And then I do it. I go to work, perform my tasks, I go home, I turn on the TV, go to bed at night, and then get up the next day. And all through the day, all through the day, the deciding factor in what should I do right now has been, well, what do I think I should do? What do I feel like? What seems right to me where I stand right now? Very subtle. Keep thinking about it. It's behind every sin. Every sin. Every time you're faced with a couple of options, should I obey God or not? Every sin is the choice of not. Why? Because at the moment, this seemed more reasonable and more appealing to me in my own eyes. 
every moment of every day, you, you are vulnerable to this. I, I don't want to say that you do in every moment of every day live like this, but every moment of every day, you are inclined towards it, vulnerable to it, prone towards it, perhaps. Life beginning with me. And not with a conscious dependence or a fervent seeking, a, a deep desire to, in this moment, in, in any way conceivable, to honor God and advance His kingdom purposes, such that I ask right now, right here, what would most honor God and most draw people to Him? That's, that's just not on the table at the moment for most of us in most moments. Is it? Is it? I would, I would love to find strong disagreement. I don't think there is strong disagreement. Let me be a little more specific. How many fathers here work long hours and give all of their best energy both time and emotion, give all of their best energy to the workplace such that the result is, honestly, I don't end up shepherding my kids. I don't end up loving my wife like Christ loves the church. Why is that? Because, wind it back, in your eyes, it seems like the job is necessary. After all, I have to provide for the family, right? Sure, but are you rationalizing? Because God has also required, however it is that you provide for the family, God has required fathers, husbands, that you shepherd your children and your wife. Required it. Have you slipped it? doing what seems more reasonable. Maybe you need to make a decision to change something about your job. That's a very specific example, I realize. But what's going on in that specific example is a man living according to what is right in his own eyes and neglecting what God has required of him. I say this, again, not the high-handedness I want to confront, but this, what I'm trying to do, is point it out and maybe reveal something to you. Because there is a great tragedy in this. It is not only sin. It is self-destructive. Where does, in the passage, where does living according to what is right in my own eyes lead me? Chaos and death everywhere. To use the same example, fathers, fathers in those types of situations, there will come a day when you will look at the, the children and the wife that you have and say, oh, I missed something. I missed something. And you will experience, sadly, you will experience a little bit of the pain of the, of the death. 
as you see your kids know less of this God than you wish they did, as you sense the distance between them and you and between your wife and you. There will be a pain there. And so I plead with you now, change. There is a God. There is a God who can be known. There is a God who can lead you and who can guide you, whose ways are always right. And the wonderful thing, Christian, is that though He looks at you and sees in you and in me and in each of us a tendency to wander, Lord, I know it, prone to leave the one I love, He sees that in us. He does not throw you away, but has acted to change it. There is a sin here that this king in mercy aims to address. He comes seeing that evil among his people and comes not to kill you, but to die for you. That's how he's going to purge the evil from his people. It needs to be purged. He'll die for it himself. What what a king. What a king. And, and, not just removing the guilt of it, but and, he has committed himself to working that out of you, Christian. To changing you. That is a good thing. And that's what the second observation is about. So the first point is that we as a people need to have this, this problem, this sin tendency in us dealt with. This tendency to live according to what is right in our own eyes. And we need God's king for that. And the second point is how it is that he addresses it. And this second point, I want to say before I, before I state it, has been very helpful for me this week. I've had a chance to think in a different way, maybe in a, a, a different way all over again. And I, I want to bring this to you, and I've been praying that as I bring this to you, that there will be something that will catch in you that will propel you forward in your Christian life. So, Here's the final point. And this relates to the passage for this morning. It's from the text here, but it also relates to the, the whole larger issue and really all of God's redemptive work. So I'm kind of lifting up our eyes a little beyond this book, but I'll start here in the book. So here's the point. We are able to experience the reign of God's King only through repentance and faith. We are able to experience the reign of God's King only through repentance and faith. That's how we come under the reign of the King initially. That's how we experience it day by day, all through life, repentance and faith. In the text, we see Israel engaged in something good and important that stands out as unique, 
by way of contrast with what we saw with Micah and Dan. Remember the, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, we saw Micah and then the tribe of Dan engage in this concocted worship setup where they neglect God's place and God's sanctuary and God's ark and God's priest and God's sacrifices and they make their own of all that stuff and attempt to worship him. Well, what stands out as unique here is that throughout chapter 20, in several different ways, we see Israel do quite the opposite. Chapter 20, verse 18. After they've gathered together the whole army, they go up to Bethel, where the ark was at the time, and they ask the Lord... So they go to the real ark, and they actually ask the real God, what should we do? And the Lord answers and tells them, and they do it. Huh. He says, Judah should go first. And they trusted him, and they did it, and they were defeated. But do they go somewhere else for a strategy the next time around? No, they go right back to the same place. Though he slays me, yet will I trust him. And they go back to the same place. Verse 23, they again went before the Lord and they wept before the Lord until evening and they asked him again, what should we do? And he answers them again and they trusted him again and did it. And they lost again. But still they go back. After the second defeat, verse 26, the whole army went up to Bethel and they wept and they sat before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and they offered sacrifices to Him and asked Him again, what should we do? And He answered again and they did it again and this time they won. But by chapter 21, the people realized the problem of the missing tribe. In verse 2, they sat there before the Lord until evening again, they lifted up their voices, they cried out to him, they wept bitterly, and they offered sacrifices again. What do we have displayed here? Without using exactly the same words, what do we have displayed here? Repentance and faith. Even though it's 400,000 against about 26,000, that situation which you might be tempted to think, I can handle this, they still go to the Lord and ask him, what should we do? And they keep going back to him even after suffering setbacks. They're, they're displaying apparent faith here, trust, and apparent repentance. That's what all the, the sitting before him, the weeping and the fasting, that's about a, a lowliness, a humility, a, a consecrating of themselves to the Lord, a setting of themselves aside to him. Repentance and faith. Now, we are in the book of Judges which has a cycle in it. Problem, they cry out to the Lord, He acts, and then what do they do? They turn away from Him again and go right back. And we do see chapter 21, things go south again. So there is reason to ask, how deep is this? How genuine is this repentance and faith? But, but don't miss what God is trying to show us here. He's trying to connect two things. Access to his presence and his power comes on the path of repentance and faith. He honors the first little baby steps down that path because that's the right path. So that we who will read it later with eyes redeemed will say, oh, there's the path. Repentance and faith, he talks to them and he acts for them. Repentance and faith. It's a fundamental point. 
made again by King Jesus when he first came and began to step onto the throne. If you were to look at Mark chapter 1, beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the first words in red, Mark chapter 1, the first words that Mark gives us, and Jesus began to preach the Gospel saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's always been a coming king. Here he is. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' first words, The king has arrived. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith is how you experience that king's reign. It's the only way you experience it. From the very beginning... It's the only way that you can come under the reign of this king, come under the saving reign of this king. So I have to ask you, have you done that? Are you free out from under the wrath of God? And have you been placed under the saving grace of God? That only comes by repentance and faith. So maybe you're not a Christian. I have to ask you. I have to plead with you. There is no other way. There is no other way to draw near to God. There is no other way to have the wrath of God that is due to you because of your tendency to live according to what is right in your own eyes. There is no other way to have the just punishment of God removed off of you other than by repentance, by turning and trusting yourself to Trusting Christ's cross. Faith. Repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. So I plead with you. Turn to Christ. And trust Him. But I know that most of us in the room have already done that. And here's the part that that has been helpful to me this week. Christian. Christian, you still, you still live right now today, yes, saved, yes, you still live right now today in the need of experiencing this rain, and that only happens to you as you walk the path of repentance and faith. Very often, Christians suffer in slow, irregular sanctification growth. Understand what I'm saying there? Very often, Christians suffer in slow or irregular growth because you've missed this point. And you are not engaging in a consistent fight. And it is a fight. That is why there are people who have been Christians for decades. Decades. And yet are remarkably immature. When you come to look at them for love and joy and peace 
and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I want to I want to point this out and I don't know any way other than just to say it and risk that it might be a wound to some. We are short on old saints and have been since I've arrived. I don't mean short on people who have been Christian for decades. I mean we are short on people who have been Christians for decades and show decades worth of growth in Christ. Who show a decades 50-year-long deepening of love. 50-year-long deepening of hope in Christ when everything goes down the toilet. 50-year, 60, 30, 40-year-long growth in patience when people disappoint you and frustrate you and insult you. We are short on that. And so I I plead with older people, perhaps there's something that you need to repent of. And with younger people, perhaps there's a path you need to get on to. Too often, we have, there's there's this wretched phrase in Christianity. Now, I understand the, the little bit of truth in it. Have you heard the phrase, let go and let God? The little bit of truth in that, the point is that we do not work ourselves into holiness. God does. Yes, absolutely. The problem is that has taken command in the church now for a long time. And what the result of that is, is that everybody just lets go of everything. And says, well, I am what I am until God makes me something else. False. False. There is a fight. There is a fight. Captured in the words, repent and believe. Christian, repent and believe. I I just ask you, whether you are young or old... Have you been or are you right now lackadaisical in your fight for daily repentance and daily faith? I'm talking about taking time regularly to search your heart in humility before God and repenting of what you find there. I'm not talking about behavior level repentance. We are, we are not about weed whacking. You know what you do with weed whacking? You take the weed whacker and you cut everything down to the dirt and what's happen- what happens next week? It's back. Because you didn't get the roots. Weed whacking just improves things in the moment. We have to get into the heart from which behavior comes. Sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes we repent like this. God, I'm sorry I lost it again. And maybe you genuinely are sorry you lost it again. God, I'm sorry I lost my temper again. I'm sorry I exaggerated. 
I told a, a lie there, or I, I gossiped again. And, and I'm assuming that, that that's, a, that's a genuine sorry. But the problem is, and if, if you've been on this, you know the again part always comes back. Again, 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 again. Stop before God and say, God, please show me what I am in here. From whence that comes. What I am in my heart that leads me to those actions. Show me what I'm following and what I'm believing. That's why repentance and faith are together. What I'm believing or what I'm not believing. Show me. So, Lord, I lost my temper again. I'm sorry for that. Why do I lose my temper? Why am I angry? Because I have a heart that chases what, in my own eyes, I think I need. And that person won't give it to me. That circumstance thwarted it. I don't believe, Jesus, that you are all that I need. And that I, I don't actually find contentment when I have you and none of that. That's what I am, oh God. I'm sorry that I lost my temper. I'm more sorry that that's what I am. Forgive me of that. Change that, please. How? And may the Spirit of God at that moment, may the Spirit of God fly to your aid and show you something. Show you someone to believe in. Because if he does not do that, all we are left with is, is an attempt to change myself which cannot succeed. The Spirit of God must come to you and show you, you think you need and you fail to believe, but look at this one who is your righteousness, your redemption, your provision, your protector, your lover, your joy. Look at him. The Spirit of God must do that so that you repent, you turn from this trust, this belief to Him and trust Him. And then five minutes later, do it again. It's a fight. Ten minutes later, do it again. And that night as you sift through your day, oh Lord, do it again. I'm talking about vigorous, deliberate faith in Christ and an earnest hunting down of what I am. So, in my life this last week, I start to think about why I want this little head thing. Why do I find myself so rushed in the morning and so strained and frankly sometimes not enough time or sometimes too tired in the time that I have in, in my time of quiet with you, Lord. I did it again. I rushed through my quiet time again this morning. Lord, I'm sorry. That's weed whacking. I start to think, why? Well, I'm tired because I didn't get, didn't get enough sleep. Why was that? Oh, to begin to think about it and humbly before God say, show me myself Reveal me to me. I realize I 
and protecting some time at night in which I can do the thing that I need to please me. What what I call it is, I need to relax or unwind a little bit. Maybe some nights that's reading, maybe some nights it's a little bit of TV, maybe some nights it's uh, a paint little military miniatures, maybe some of that. But what's going on there is I don't think, look how subtle this is, in my own eyes I think if I'm going to live a life that is whole and satisfying, I need that little period after the kids go to bed, which happens at dark, in other words, 10 o'clock these days. I, I need that. And so I give myself to that, go to bed late, get up, and that which should be the fullness of joy for me isn't, because I'm asleep. All from a belief. You follow that. So God, I'm sorry for what's gone on this morning at 7 a.m., but I'm more sorry. I'm more, now as I see it, grieved by what I actually am, the depth of my unbelief that drives my behavior. Would you change me? And I'm going to have to fight that battle tonight and tomorrow night and the next night and the next night, and so will you. And if you don't, you will not grow. Because the king's reign only comes on those who walk in repentance and faith. Turning away from the things that we are trusting for life and to Him, trusting Him. Believing what He says. That's how the kingdom blossoms in your heart. That's how the power of the king runs through you to purge evil out of you. He's done that once on the cross, yes, but you need to be cleansed. And how he pulls that out of you is as you walk in repentance and faith. Now, obviously, God the Spirit must give you the power to do it. He must shine Christ. He must. We are dependent on Him. But you must. So people of God, I plead with you, we need a King. We need a King to reign over us. We need a King to reorient us. A King to purge the evil out of us and fasten us to Him. But we also need to come under the reign of that King and cease rebelling, rebelling against Him. And that's where it comes to you. So I call you, repent and believe. Let me pray. God, help us. Please help us. I don't think that that any of us, Lord, I don't think that any of us understand the depth, the depth to which we wander, 
the depth at which we are prone to wander. But would you graciously, Father, show each person here some of it? Would you convict each one of us, particularly those of us who find their hearts have gone cold towards you, who find that we do not display 50 or 5 years, whatever is appropriate, we didn't display a sanctification appropriate to our age. Would you bring a conviction that is not condemning, but is inspiring? That inspires repentance and faith. Give us strength, Father, to take up this fight. You make us a church that is more than just knowledgeable, that is more than just active, but that is holy. Make us a people like that. And towards that end, stir us to fight daily in repentance, trusting you. I need your help with that, Father. I pray you would make it so in the lives of my friends here. For Christ's honor in our midst and for our growth, for our good, I pray it. Jesus, thank you. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.